You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. A really quick note before we start. If you would like to support humanitarian relief efforts in the Middle East, Rogers, which owns this program, is going to match donations to the Canadian Red Cross's special fund. Canadians can donate five bucks to support Canadian Red Cross's Middle East Humanitarian Crisis Appeal by texting the word Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, to 20222 in English or 30333 in French. Anything you can give, Rogers will match until October 31st, 2023. So if you're looking to help some people out who could really use it, this is a good way to do it. In January of 2022, a curious thing happened in Halifax. It's something that probably happens all the time, but rarely ends up reported and never ends up in small claims court. A sex worker performed services for a client who then paid only a small fraction of what the two had agreed upon. And rather than simply taking the loss, the worker took the client to court and won to the tune of nearly $2,000. This is believed to be the first case in Canadian history involving the enforceability of a contract for sexual services. And while precedent is important, the broader context of the laws around sex work in Canada is even more critical. Because to put it simply, at this moment, those laws are a constitutional battleground and the ground may soon shift completely or never shift at all. Recently, an alliance of sex workers groups raised a charter challenge in Ontario, arguing that in fact, Canada's laws around sex work are unconstitutional. That challenge was initially denied. The groups will appeal and all that means is the Supreme Court of Canada is likely next. At the heart of this fight is a simple question but a polarizing one. Is sex work inherently exploitative? Or can it be, for those who choose it, just a job? A job where you can, say, take a non-paying client to court. This is where two legal paths and two very different visions for the future of sex work in Canada diverge. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Meredith Ralston is a professor at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. She's also a filmmaker and an author who focuses on the subject of sex work. Hello, Meredith. Hello, how are you? I'm doing really well. I wonder if maybe you could just explain to us what is the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act? The Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act is actually Canada's sex work legal framework. And it came about in 2014. The Supreme Court of Canada, previously to that, had ruled all the prostitution laws in Canada, the three big ones that I can talk about, were ruled unconstitutional. But unfortunately for sex workers, the Supreme Court gave the federal government one year to come up with an alternative to do something about those laws. And what they came up with was this Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. Mm-hmm. And what they did there, as you can see from the title, it's not, you don't, sex work's not even in the title of it. What it's about is about 
the protection of communities, but also seeing prostitution and sex work as inherently problematic. And so what the federal government did at the time was enable legislation that is called, depending on what group you represent, the Nordic model because it came out of Sweden, the equality model if you're anti-prostitution, or end demand, because that's really what it is. It's there right in the, in the preface to the law. Prostitution is inherently problematic, bad for communities, bad for women. And so we want to prevent men, basically, they don't put it in gendered terms in the legislation, but the purchasing of sex is illegal. The selling of sex is legal in some circumstances. So that's the basic framework. It's asymmetric, meaning that the penalties are different for the different sides of it. And that's what this legal challenge is all about. Well, that's why uh, we called you. Maybe you can tell us about the charter challenge. It was recently brought before the Ontario Supreme Court. What was it about? Why was it made? So about a year ago, 25 sex worker organizations got together and decided to do a constitutional challenge about these new laws. In the sa- and almost the same people, the same organizations, because what they believe happened in the past nine years is that the harm to sex workers has not changed. That legal, even though it's a different legal framework now than we had before, previously prostitution was legal for purchasing or selling, but the three main aspects of prostitution were illegal. So it made it very problematic for sex workers and dangerous for sex workers. Hmm. So at the time of the what was called the Bedford decision in 2013, they did, the Supreme Court said, that's right, those three laws are problematic, unconstitutional, and that's what they gave the, um, the government a chance to do something about it. But because it's still in a legal gray area, because the purchase of sex is illegal, even if there are no penalties on the person who sells sex, it still makes it very problematic for sex workers themselves. And so what the groups were trying to do is to say that nothing's really changed. The intent of the legislation is to stop sex work. It's to stop the purchase of sex. It hasn't done that. And all the the ways in which sex workers can make themselves um, safer are still with us. So that was what the challenge was about. You said that the new rules are still problematic for sex workers, even though the selling of sex itself is no longer illegal. Why is that? Because it's still in this legal gray area which the justice does not agree with. So it's definitely going to be appealed probably to the Supreme Court. And as he said in the ruling, it's probably going to have to be a parliamentary decision in terms of legalization. But the issue is, so even if, as he said, okay, two sex workers who are voluntarily doing sex work could work in their homes, the buying of sex is still illegal. So let's say you have the two women working in a home to be safer, but you and you're advertising, and then um, a client comes in, what he's doing is illegal. So you could still have police involvement, you could still be raided, all the different ways in which you it's it's still a stigmatized, criminalized activity because sex work is no longer legal. So it'll be up to the lawyers and the the appeals court, obviously, to to look at some of his arguments that he made. And basically, he said that the it's the can't it can be saved by section one of the Constitution, which is reasonable limits, meaning that Parliament can then, because of many different reasons, can put reasonable limits on somebody's freedom. So that freedom of expression, that freedom of association, those things, he did agree with the complainants 
that those do go against the Constitution, but it's saved by Section 1. It will definitely be appealed to the Supreme Court. And so this will be a Supreme Court of Canada decision, and this will essentially decide the legality of sex work in Canada? If they can get it there, because what he actually said in the, it's 148 pages and a lot of legalese, but he also noted another case that had gone just before then, where it also said that because the act says that selling sex is legal in, in certain circumstances, then the penalties don't flow to them. Because that another court case said that, I, he's thinking it won't be able to be appealed. Hmm. They're not going to let it go. Neither side is going to let it go. And that's part of the problem. The, the positions are so polarized between the anti-prostitution, whether it's police, feminist, religious groups, and the pro-decriminalization group. There's just no, it's, it's so difficult to come to some kind of consensus because the positions are so polarized. Well, I wonder if one of the reasons that it is that way is because, you know, we do have to acknowledge when we're talking about this, that some people are forced into the sex trade against their will. And how do you balance the protections needed for those people with the freedom or or right of people who have, you know, knowingly chosen sex work as work to do their job? Absolutely. And that is the key issue that one, it's a legitimate concern that there are people who are trafficked. There's no question about that. The problem is in terms of how many statistics, et cetera. Another problem is that the anti-prostitution groups conflate the two so that they they refer to prostitution or they don't usually use, they certainly don't use the word sex work. They talk about prostituted woman or prostituted person. Mm-hmm. So in their mind, there's no, it is not an equal exchange. All sex work is trafficking. That, that's a problem. But we do have to make sure that people are doing it consensually, they are adults, and there's no violence. What the, the organizations are saying is that we have other elements of the criminal code, other laws, that will deal with trafficking. It doesn't mean that we're going to have no anti-trafficking laws, sexual assault laws, age laws. So all those things about consent, force, fraud, and coercion, anything like that are still in the criminal code. What it would mean, what they want, is that the, uh, any reference to sex work is removed from the criminal code, and then health and safety regulations at the municipality level or the provincial level would be used to regulate sex work. But it's not to say everybody is against trafficking. <laughs> everybody is against the bu- abuse of sex workers. Mm-hmm. The problem is that some people believe that all sex work is violence against women. Right. And some people believe that sex work can be done with respect and dignity, two polarized points of view. When you believe that something is inherently exploitative, how can you possibly make it, if not legal, even, you know, want to make it safer than it is? And I can speak to that personally, actually. In my previous research, and this would have been 20 years ago, I dealt with young girls in the Philippines, bar girls in the Philippines. And my Point of view on sex work was fairly negative, I have to say, because of that that group of, of young women and my own ideology. So I would say to a lot of people who are against prostitution, you need to talk to people. You need to talk to a lot of different people. You need to talk to those who are doing it consensually, willingly, making a lot of money, as well as those who are not doing so well. Because the people who are doing well can tell us 
about those conditions that can help make it better. Hmm. And but what I mean by that is that the women I, I interviewed who were uh, working escorts had a lot of ways to make themselves safer. The laws don't help, of course, but they do have a lot of screening. They have regulars. They have ways in which to make it safer. So you would think that if it wasn't just an ideological position that all sex work is harmful for women, you would try to make it safer. And so when, when I think about some of the organizations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN, the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls just came out with a position paper saying that sex work should be decriminalized as a harm reduction strategy. It's just a first stage. You decriminalize it, you get it out of a criminal code, and then you have to do all of these things to try to make it safer, whether that's women working together, whether that's health and safety. And of course, the, the best example of that is New Zealand. So those who are anti-prostitution always look at Sweden, Norway, and the, those Nordic countries that are, have been historically very good on gender equality. But so has New Zealand. They have chosen two different ways to look at it because Sweden, the Scandinavian countries, believe that they can somehow eradicate sex work. New Zealand is taking a more pragmatic harm reduction point of view to say that I don't think so. That both for the people who are purchasing and for selling, it's unlikely that we're going to get rid of it. Let's make it as safe as possible. And it's that compromise that many people can't do. Because right. if you believe that it is an inherently horrible thing for women to have to do to sell their bodies, and I've, you can't see me, but I've got like the air quotes going. Mm -hmm. um, if you believe that, then you're not going to back down because you believe it's, it's violence against women. But unfortunately, what they're doing is not understanding that they are creating harm. And that's another thing I find very difficult in some of these conversations is that this is how these women make money. This is how they live. And to take away that without having an ability for jobs, for drugs if they're drug-seeking, homelessness, whatever, there's just so many things that need to be in place before you just take away their one source of income because you're really, you think it's icky. You think that it's harmful and you have a moral problem with prostitution. Let's talk about some of the other things that can impact protections for sex workers. So you're out in Halifax. There is a important case that happened there that could illustrate this. Can you just maybe explain it to us and what it could mean for sex worker protections? Now, that was an interesting one because it goes to the heart of the problem with this asymmetrical model. So a sex worker did not get paid by a client. She went to small claims court and she won. So the, the elements of the case were she and a client had agreed on $300 per hour for the time that she spent with him. She spent seven hours with him, so she expected $2,100. He gave her $300. And then she took him to small claims court. And he argued, because what he did was illegal, so the irony is just beyond me, but anyway, he argued that, well, what I did was illegal, so it voids the contract. There is no contract because it's an illegal activity. So on the one hand, you could say, well, yeah, that looks, that looks, that could be a problem. They may not uphold that. The adjudicator said, sex work itself, the, perch, the uh, selling of sex is legal in this circumstances. There was an implied contract because verbally and text and stuff, he owes her the money. 
And I think sex workers thought that is a good illustration of the problems with the asymmetrical model because that's how it's going to be used. It's illegal and therefore you can't abide by a contract. Whether that's going to have any help in the future, I'm not sure about that, actually, because of this court case saying the way that they've worded the PCEPA is is such a way that it protects the sex workers. Uh, I don't think it does, but I'm I'm not the judge. When you're dealing with an issue that at least on one side is so incredibly ideological, and then you look at the hyper-partisan nature of federal politics or any politics in this country, like, how do you get anything done on either side that has any sort of compromise? It seems like we're stuck with the status quo because the system itself is at an impasse. And that's absolutely true. The liberals, when the conservative government brought in the act in 2014, were against it and said at one point that they were, as soon as they got in, they were going to relook at that legislation. They haven't done that because it's such a a nest. It's such a a viper's nest (laughs) of, of coalitions, and it's so polarized. So the amount of people that it impacts is unfortunately too small for the liberals to stick their neck out in this sense, right. to say that you are not protecting sex workers with this legislation. You are taking a moral point of view that sex work is wrong and violence to women, and you're not willing to take a stand on that because they know what's going to happen. I mean, if you look at the people who were interveners in the case, somewhat similar to the Bedford case, the evangelical fellowship, the police unions, the anti-prostitution feminists on the one hand, and then you've got the civil libertarians and the sex worker groups on the on the other hand, and Amnesty International was there as well. So it's just so polarized. I just wish that people would see, I guess what I'd like them to see is that this is not just an issue for a marginalized group and I can just turn my back on it. I think that it really represents a problem for all women, actually, hmm. that when we put women into different categories, the good girl, bad girl categories, then what we're doing is allowing people to treat the bad girls badly. And there's a long, long history of this in not just Canada, in in most countries actually, where men have made rules or religion or something that says women are controlled in this way because of generally in sexuality. And there's, you know, There's good girls and bad girls. And many women themselves buy into that. I was telling uh, your producer earlier that uh, in one of the articles I wrote, a woman wrote in and said, women who who take their clothes off and have sex with strange men are whores. She literally wrote that without actually seeing how that impacts her. And what I'd like to say to her is that if you truly believe that women— are good or bad, that it means that if you've ever had too much to drink, gone to a bar by yourself, and something bad happens to you, you are going to be blamed. You're going to be slut-shamed. Now, maybe she could say, like some people do, oh, well, I'd never do those things, and I protect myself, and, you know, I'm not a bad girl. But it's a pretty low bar (laughs) for that in terms of the victim blaming that goes on. So they sometimes don't seem related, but it very much is. And the deep-rootedness of those ideas about women's sexuality, that's at the root of it. And I think that really has to be challenged all the time. And and it's not because people just then 
you know, see sex work and go, ooh, yuck, icky, don't want to look at it, it's not about me. And they don't see the underlying problem with our laws against sex work. Well, since you've mentioned good and bad, you've also written a piece in The Conversation that says governments shouldn't be deciding what is good or bad sex. Is that the same, the same sort of philosophy behind that, or what do you mean by that? Wasn't my title. I'm not a libertarian. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> We've all had editors who write a headline that they think yeah. uh, is going to work for them. Exactly. But at the same time, I, I would agree that historically, the state, the government, religion— has made the categories of good and bad. They may not call it that, but at one point, acceptable sex was pretty limited. It was between a man and a woman after marriage, and that was about it. And so grad, and they were in the criminal justice system. So homosexuality was illegal. Adultery was illegal. Anything except for that was illegal. So those laws have really liberalized since the 1960s. Adultery is no longer in the criminal code. Homosexuality certainly certainly isn't. We have legal same-sex marriage. So in a lot of different ways, those restrictions have eased. At the same time, what we're doing with commercialized sex, essentially, is to say that is bad sex. So we're still making judgments about what is good or bad. And really, the only thing that is still in the criminal code is commercialized sex, in, in particular the purchasing of sex, regardless of, of whether people consent, whether there's no violence, whether somebody's making a lot of money. That's about the only example I can think of, there may be more, where other than, of course, violence, age, or non-consent. It's not in the criminal code. As we try to figure out, or I guess as the Supreme Court of Canada tries to figure out uh, going forward, you know, a way to move on this that will protect sex workers while also finding the middle ground. What do you think that people need to understand that might be getting lost in, you know, as you mentioned, this incredibly partisan debate? Well, if the anti-prostitution activists would ever speak to me again, which they probably wouldn't, <laughs> because I, I did a film that was, I think they perceived as uh, in favor of their position about the women in the Philippines. And then I did one that was basically the opposite. And they would not, I wouldn't be able to interview them anymore. But what I would like to say seriously to people I know, the anti-prostitution activists that I know, is that I wish you would see the connection to your own life, and not just the fact that you find commercialized sex or uh, women having sex with men for money problematic morally or any other ways, or whether because you actually do believe that it's violence. I would want them to speak to women who don't have that experience, and I would ask them to think very carefully about a, a sexual double standard and what I've just called this the good, well, I certainly have not, didn't make this up, it's long history and scholarship, the good girl, bad girl dichotomy. It has been hugely problematic for women. If you look in most cultures, there is this divide and a way to punish bad girls. I wish they would see that connection, that problematizing sex work is really buying in to both the sexual double standard and that good girl, bad girl dichotomy. And I'm not saying they're not very well-meaning because they actually do believe that they are, they are rescuing women, they are saving women from themselves, essentially. But I think they really need to look at that and look more deeply at what their assumption is about women's sexuality. They are damaged. What they're saying is women are damaged by their sexuality. Now, 
again, in certain circumstances, whether it's non-consensual or violent, a different issue. But unless you're saying that all sex is that, then that's, a, that's highly problematic. It's not likely that, and maybe this is the worry, that you, we, we legalize sex work and then all men are going to run out and, and go to the sex workers. I don't think that's going to happen. It might, but and I think we have to think about, well, what, would, what, what is the worry about that? If there's no harm to the worker, big if, then what is the worry? And then as another person said to me, many of the sex workers really believe that if women valued their own sexuality to value good sex, that they too might go to a sex worker. Uh, now, again, that's in the realm of science fiction at this point, but I think there's something to be said. There are women who are sex tourists in the, another project in the Gambia. I'm not saying those are not problematic because of the class and race issues, uh, just as the, the men going to the Philippines, but there's something that really needs to be looked at in terms of what your views are. If you refuse to call that sex tourism, for instance, because that's romance tourism, because you're not willing to accept that women's sexuality is a little broader than you perhaps think it is and not so harmful to them as you think. Meredith, thank you for this. It's an incredibly complicated issue. I understand it a little better now. It's very complicated and I thank you for having me. Dr. Meredith Ralston of Mount St. Vincent University. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, or write to us via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, and even call us just to chat to yourself because it's a voicemail, but we'll listen to it. 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available wherever you get your podcasts, And of course, you can ask for it on your smart speaker just by saying, play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency.